Last week we were in Nehemiah and we talked about the importance of the Word of God for worship. And I am uh, going to talk today about worship again. And back in the days when people actually went to an office building to work, there was a phenomenon that took place around a water cooler. A water cooler is what used to be in a place where you'd get a nice cool drink, and it was often housed in a common area of the workplace. And consequently, an informal communication channel grew up around the water cooler. It was a place where you could catch up on what was going on within the workplace and beyond. And and in John chapter 4, we find Jesus interacting with a woman at an ancient water cooler called a well. It's true. And the spiritual topic and focus was true worship. Now, there were other things that were discussed at that well, and we'll get to that in a moment. But alongside that topic of worship, on a personal level, there are a lot of things revealed to that woman. And before we get to our text, I'd just like to share some preliminary thoughts. A.W. Tozer, who's heard of Tozer? Good, good. You know, um, I say things and assume everybody knows what I'm saying, And so I'm checking now. I just want to make sure. Anything that you buy from Tozer or about Tozer is okay. So you got the goods on that one. He said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper enters high or low thoughts about God. For this reason, he goes on, the most important question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be. What do you conceive God to be? We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Now this is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. That's taken from Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy, uh, a book that you should have on your shelves or in your phones, as it may be. J.I. Packer, another source that I often refer to, points out a couple of important thoughts in his wonderful book, Knowing God. That's a book that I, I read annually for many years when I was over in Indonesia, it was just so amazing, and I was studying the concept of, of sanctification, and that book was very helpful in that, and I would also suggest that you should own that book or a copy of it somehow, and he warns about two dangers in the knowledge of God. We're talking about what our view is of God, what, what do we think of when we think of God, what do we think of? Number one His warning said, a person can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. Okay? Now, you've noticed in my sermons over, well, since Christmas time, that I've talked quite a bit about a personal understanding, a personal relationship with God. Because there's a lot of people that wander into Beacon of Hope that may come from other church denominations, different teachings than we might teach here, and I've found that some really don't have a personal relationship with him, and so I want to be sure to specify that that's important, and you'll hear more about that as I go on. 
But his first warning is a person can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. Secondly, a person can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. So it's all up here, okay? Never made it down to here and doesn't come out through the members of our body. He goes on and gives four safeguards against possessing mere head knowledge about God and godliness. He says, this, this will be displayed in those who know God, who actually know him. Number one, those who know God have great energy for God. Okay, those who know God have great energy for God. And he quotes Daniel 11.32 uh, to back that up. The people that know their God will be strong and do exploits. I love that. The people who know God will be strong and they will do exploits for God's glory. Number two, those who know God have great thoughts of God. That kind of goes back to Tozer, right? They have great thoughts of God. Nebuchadnezzar examples this in Daniel 4.17 after his humbling took place where he is crawling around on the ground eating grass like a cow for seven years. He said this, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. He had a high view of God. Thirdly, those who know God show great boldness for God. Kind of in line with what he said, you'll do exploits, right? Well, Stephen was stoned to death for God and for his testimony, and all the while he was praising God and praying for those who were murdering him. I would say that's an exploit and doing a great thing for God with great boldness. The Apostle Paul reflected such boldness saying this, neither count, I my, neither count I my life dear to myself so that I might finish my course with joy. Paraphrased, he was willing to die so that he could finish his course. No matter what it would take, he was on a course and he was willing to die for God. Fourthly and finally, those who know God have a great contentment in God. Now this is very important. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come to mind in front of the king and the burning furnace when challenged to deny God and worship the statue. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer you in this matter, which is the Bible's way of saying, we, didn't, we don't even have to think. This is a no-brainer. For us, okay? If it is so, our God, whom we serve, he's able to deliver us. We're not worried about it. But he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. So it don't matter. It did not matter to them. They're like Paul. They were willing to die for the God that they understood to be their God. So I need to say this right now. Only those who are the true children of God can know God. Only the true children of God can actually know him. Only a regenerate person is able to evidence such energy and thoughts and boldness and contentment in God. And therefore, only such are able to worship God. I mean truly worship God. Now, anybody can go through the motions. Uh, the churches in America are filled with people that go every Sunday and they don't know the God that they are pretending to worship. They may even have deceived themselves in thinking that they are worshiping God but they know a lot about him, but they don't know him personally. As creatures created by God in the image of God, all men worship something. He has put eternity in the heart of men. And everyone has an ultimate that's behind their lives, a divine that their starting point and motivation is 
energized by in their life. God has created people with that faculty, and people cannot live without fulfilling it. Everyone worships something, but not everyone worships God. And here's the age-old problem. Most people worship idols. Most people are worshiping that which is not God, mere shadows of God. And if they do not worship the true God, they worship an idol. The first commandment says as much, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus reiterated this command when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That pretty much sums it up. And your neighbor as yourself. Well, consider with me for just a moment that there are on this earth, at this moment, billions of people who have no idea why they were even born. Just think about that for a second. You have neighbors in your neighborhood. I know you have members in your family, people at school that you go to school. They're lost. Now, when we say somebody is lost in church, we know what we mean. But the folks outside the church, that's a form of Christianese. That's one of those words like salvation, sanctification, glorification, justification. All these words that we use so freely in church we kind of form a language called, I call it, Christianese. And people outside the church don't really understand it. It's a way of speaking that is distinctly cultivated and used in church. But I'd like to broaden that term somewhat because most people who are lost choose what they worship as their identity. Okay? Follow my thought. Most people who are lost choose what they worship as their personal identity. They do that because they do not know that they've been created in the image of God and that they have been created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the purpose that God created us as human beings for. They don't know that. So they are living with a mistaken identity. They have identified themselves with something that is not true. No one living with a mistaken identity can truly worship God. When such a person first hears the gospel, and this is interesting, the news enters their lives and it, it exposes to them who God is. And how he created man, but man sinned in rebellion against God and rejects God and their creator. And they worship the creature or a chosen identity rather than the creator. This is new news to someone who is lost. It's startling news to them. And it's news that I think if you just say it without any explanation or any type of context, it's cruel. You're being cruel to them. But you do need to help people to understand their lostness because they don't. You see, conversion is where the Holy Spirit takes that new information that I just shared, that we have a creator, whether you believe in him or not, does not make him non-existent. He is, and he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, including humanity. And that brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. When you share these things with someone, that brings them under conviction. Which if the person is being drawn by God, according to John chapter 6, we read about that this morning in Sunday school, And that person is being drawn by God and he hears those truths and they respond positively, then their eyes open up and they discover their true identity and they become a child of God. First time. I remember distinctly when that happened to me. 
I don't know the exact date, but I know where I was. I know what time of year it was and what year it was. And I became a child of God. Turn to John chapter 4 with me. John chapter 4. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? Now you've got to understand the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along at all. I'll explain this a little bit further later on. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. John kind of gives us his editorial comment and explains that to us at the end of verse 9. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 12, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Do you ever notice with lost people who are under the delusion of a false identity or um, an identity that is other than what God created them to be, that they're not constant in their identity? <laughs> Do you know why? Because it's like this water. It doesn't... It doesn't slack the, the thirst, there's still a thirsting. I remember prior to my salvation, my own personal salvation, I was never content, never satisfied. I was always bouncing from one thing to another thing to another thing. And you may know some people like that. For a while, they're really into this thing. And that becomes their whole life. Until it's not, and then they change it, and they, they're into something else. Until it's not, and then they change it. Some people do that with spouses. Okay, Some people do that with jobs and careers. Some people do it with cars. The thing is, is that that water doesn't slack the thirst that we have. That's, that's what is being said here. Verse 14, whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Well, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I'll not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said, well, go get your husband and come here. Now he's getting to her identity. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So what was her idol? What was in her life that she is trying to, to live out? That she worshipped that if she could only find that right man everything would be great. Five, and the one she was with wasn't her husband. Nineteen. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers 
will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture that is painted for us in John 4 of this woman with a mistaken identity meeting the Lord Jesus Christ who helps her to understand who she truly is. A person that has been created in the image of God and created to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And everything that she was trying to derive enjoyment from, everything she was trying to derive satisfaction and contentment from fell short. Just did not satisfy. Thank you for the fact that you met this woman right where she was and you confronted her with her sin and you pointed her to yourself. Let us learn today what you would have us to learn in Jesus' name. Well, this is a beautiful example of a biblical account where a Samaritan woman was under the delusion of a mistaken identity. She thought she was just a Samaritan, and she thought she should worship at Mount Gerizim. And she thought she needed a man in her life to complete her. Now, all of her thinking was due to a case of mistaken identity. She was mistaken in her identity as a woman. She was mistaken in her identity as needing a man to fulfill her. She was even mistaken in where she worshipped Gerizim. Mount Gerizim. And Jesus entered into her life, brought her face to face with her true identity by identifying himself to her. And when she understood who Jesus was, she finally knew her identity according to God. And she was confronted with who she was in God's eyes, a sinner in need of a savior. And when she believed, she finally became who she was created to be, a child of God. I want us to watch how, how Jesus brings this woman around. It's amazing, actually. Temples and cathedrals and church buildings. We get caught up in so much stuff. Jesus said, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Verse 21. The woman did not know who or where she should worship. Jesus' startling response to the woman in verse 21 that an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, in essence, threw both Samaritans and Jews under the bus. Both of them had it wrong. Taking his statement at face value, Jesus was telling the woman that there was a time coming when both Jews and Samaritans would not be worshiping at the traditional sites of worship, neither on the top of Mount Gerizim nor at the temple, which had been destroyed over a half century earlier. There was a temple on Mount Gerizim that the Jews actually destroyed because they felt it was false worship. And that happened a half a century earlier than this conversation. And he also said it's not going to take place at the temple in Jerusalem either because In a few years, 70 AD, that temple would be completely decimated by the Romans. But Jesus is pointing at something deeper here, as he always did when he talked to people. They'd be at the surface level, and he's depth diving down, trying to get a hold of them. He's pointing to something deeper, and it's relevant for us today because real worship, true worship, is not a matter of a geographical location. You see, first, Jesus let the Samaritan woman know that the Samaritan worship was a worship of ignorance. That is rather bold, don't you think? I mean, she's inquiring, where should we worship? Where is the right place to worship? Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim and and Jews worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Well, Mount Gerizim, in Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 29, 
you have blessings and cursings. Blessings if you obey, cursings if you disobey. And Moses has given them, and he's pointing to Mount Gerizim on one hand, and then right across the plain, there's, there's Mount Ebal. Okay? And he's saying, this is cursing, this is blessing. Basically, choose today if you're going to be obedient and receive blessing or disobedient and receive cursing. It was one of the mountains that the people encountered on entering the promised land near Shechem. It was the first place that Abraham built an altar at Shechem. Okay? And the Samaritans chose this mount as their place to worship, but the Jews chose Jerusalem. Now the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along together, and in 112 BC, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. But it remained a holy place, and they still went there to worship. And so this is why she's having this conversation with Jesus. Very interesting. Now, he says, what you worship, you do not know, verse 22. And in the same breath, he affirmed that the Jews at least knew what they worshipped, which is to say the Jews and not the Samaritan were God's chosen people. This is, this is bold, very bold. But even in Judaism, the tradition had taken over worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and you all remember what Jesus called it in his day, a den of thieves. And he turned over the tables. So both Jews and Samaritans were not really, truly worshiping God, not in a true way, even though the Jews were God's people. He affirmed that but they weren't worshiping in a right way. Now, Jesus gave the woman a hint as to what true worship would involve in his response at the end of verse 21. He, he, he is speaking about worshiping the Father. Relationship, oh man, relationship is far more important than location. In fact, it is impossible to worship God truly without relationship with him. We're right back at Jesus' command to Nicodemus, you must be born again. For without relationship with God, who is our father? There can be no true worship. You can't just go to a place, no matter how many years, no matter how long you've been alive, and just because you go to a place... Consider yourself in. That is not true worship. Think of all the cathedrals and temples and churches in the world and think how few truly worship God in spirit and truth. The church, according to the Bible, is made up of born-again people. Therefore, wherever they meet, that is the church, that is where true worship takes place. Now, when I said relationship is more important than location, I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, then we really can worship God out under a tree. No. (laughs) No. That's not what we're talking about here. I was not saying you can worship God under a tree or any old place that you're at or at a home just as well as attending church services. I'm not dissing you. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate that. (laughs) But it'd be better for you to come, be a part of us at the local church. The local church is gathered as God's designated place for corporate worship. Now, it is true. I mean, we are hardly in a church building or what anybody would term a church building, right? It is true that a local church could meet in a home. But remember, what comprises a local church, it's not just a couple of people getting together and praying where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. That is not a church. That's two or three people praying. But some people misunderstand that and say, well, me and my buddy and his wife and kids, we get together and we have church in our house. That is not church. Church is where you have elders. Church is where you... you corporately worship together. It's where the, the ordinances are practiced, the baptism and communion. 
the Lord's table. Church is where church discipline is carried out. Church is where we, we live out the one another's in the Bible with one another. It's in the context of the local assembly, the church meeting together. So don't misunderstand me when I say that relationship is more important than location. It is true. But if you're gathered in a home with other believers and you are a church, as I just defined, whether it's in a cave, a warehouse, or a church building, that is the local manifestation of the church. Now, worship in spirit, verse 23. True worship demands a new birth. Isn't that what John had just been stressing about in the previous chapter in his talk with Nicodemus? Here again, we must understand how important this is. True worship demands a new birth. And the new birth demands complete surrender to the Lord. You cannot have true worship, worship in the Spirit, without the Holy Spirit. I feel stupid saying that, but I'm going to say it again. You cannot have true worship, worship in the Spirit, without the Holy Spirit. Upon conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the life of the new convert. But you cannot have true worship while holding areas of your life back from the Lordship of Jesus Christ either. Many of us have listened to and read Rosaria Butterfield. She is a modern-day example of an amazing conversion. And some of you have even read her testimony in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which, again, that's book number three, I'll break your book budget. Just keep listening to me. But you should have that. That's a wonderful book to read. Her conversion illustrates this kind of a life change. Listen to her words, folks. And then check your own life. Is this true of you? She writes, When I became a Christian, I had to change everything. My life. My friends, my writings, my teaching, my advising, my clothes, my speech, my thoughts. I was a tenured to a field that I could no longer work in. She was a professor of English. And I was a faculty advisor to all the gay, lesbian, and feminist groups on campus. I was writing a book that I had no longer believed in. <laughs> And I was scheduled in a few months to give the upcoming address to all of Syracuse University's graduate students. What in the world would I say to them now? The lecture that I had written and planned to deliver on queer theory, I just threw it in the trash. Thousands of new students would hear my first fledgling attempt to speak about Christian hermeneutics at a postmodern university. I tell you, get that testimony, get her book. It's just, it's refreshing to read because she's the real deal. She was genuinely converted. Her life before conversion and her life after conversion were like night and day. And she makes no bones about it. And she's continued to hold that testimony now for many years. She's married and the mother of, I think, three or four children. And she homeschools them. And her, her husband is a pastor. Mar marvelous story. She did not tack Jesus onto her life. She did not just go to church and continue in the same lifestyle outside of church that she followed before her conversion. She couldn't. Because now she had a new identity, a brand new identity. And it was an identity that was in sync with reality, which is the truth of God's word. And she knew it, and she embraced it completely. And she was now a born-again child of God, and she could now worship her father in spirit and truth. Now there's external and internal worship. 
verse 23. Worship in spirit and truth. We cannot separate the couplet, spirit and truth. It does not say worship in spirit and in truth. There's only one preposition, in, and it covers both nouns, in spirit and truth. So true worship is essentially God-centered because the beginning of the verse tells us God is spirit. And such worship is made possible only by the Holy Spirit. The truth element is to say that true worship is done in conformity to God's word made flesh, the one who is God's truth. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the one to whom God has given the spirit without limit. You cannot divide this couplet. It, it, it is indivisible. And anyone who will truly worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. They go together. Now worship is both inward and outward. It's experienced, but it's demonstrable. What is worship? And where can we go to find a good definition? What, what the author has done, an exceptional job of describing it for us, but the Bible is where we should always begin. You always go to the Word of God to find out what you need to know. And worship is described in both the Old and New Testaments primarily through two words in the Old Testament and two words in the New Testament. And when you take those two words and compare them with each other, they say basically the same thing. The Hebrew word, abodah, translated work or service, is used for the priest's service to God in a tabernacle. And it's used in very many other places. And then shakah translates to bow down or in context often means to pay homage to or give honor to a superior. That's in the Hebrew. In the Greek, you have latria, which is translated service or serving. And that's comparable to abodah. And it's also translated to minister or ministry. Anna. Never left the temple, serving Latria, serving night and day with fasting and prayers. Some translate this as worshiping. And then proskuneo, proskuneo, and that's translated as worship, and it's often preceded by the act of falling down on your face, rendering reverence to a superior. So you see the parallel with the Hebrew word. Now, one commentator writes of worship, true worship is giving honor and respect to God. Oh, man, I could go for weeks just on that alone right there, folks. That's why we as Christians gather together on Sunday, and we don't gather to give respect to the preacher or those who lead in worship. We gather to give honor to God. The sermon And the music are just to be the stimuli that create the desire in our hearts to bring our worship to God. Don't come here to receive. Come here to give your worship to God. Now let me stop for a second and consider honor, that word honor. We come to Give honor and respect to God. What does that mean? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. Going to get in trouble. If I were to meet a dignitary, somebody that I really respected, they're getting fewer and fewer and fewer. (laughs) But if I was to meet somebody that I really respected, how would I dress? How would I prepare to meet that person? I might even be in such awe of this person and their stature and their accomplishments that I might prepare things that I might say to them, right? So that I don't mess up when I talk to them. I would be serious, I would watch my appearance. 
and I'd give them the honor that their position deserves. Do we do that, people? You know, we live in such a casual era. Such a casual era. Does our casualness reflect honor to God? That's all I'm saying. I am not for dress codes at all. But even in the Taliabo, when they first got saved, they came to church and the gatherings in their loincloths, bare-chested, just a loincloth, a little covering for their privates. We never dressed up like this there, but we did wear a shirt, <laughs> and we wore long pants when we were in church, and flip-flops, and we took those off, so we were barefoot. After a while, and we never said anything to them about what they should wear at church. They smoked in church, in their loincloth, barebacked. And we watched the Spirit of God slowly transform them. We never taught on it. We never said anything. We never said, don't smoke. We only told them, be controlled by the Spirit of God. And very slowly, those things dropped off. And pretty soon, they started wearing a towel wrapped around instead of just their loincloth. And after a little while later, they started wearing shorts. They're still bare-chested. <laughs> and we just watched this take place. And before long, they were actually wearing shorts and a T-shirt. Some of them had long pants, and they'd wear long pants. Smoking and betel nut chewing stopped a long time ago. They just stopped doing it. We never said anything about it. I'll tell you, folks, when you have a high view of God, it begins to affect the way you worship, the way you come and bring your worship to him because he is a dignitary. He is the highest of the highest. There is no one beyond God. <laughs> what is it going to be like in heaven? Did you, did you listen to what I read about? Okay, no wonder John fell to the ground like a dead man when he saw this. I, take it for what it's worth. Apply it where it's needing to be applied. You see, we need to understand that true biblical worship is linked with service in both testaments. And true worship incorporates boots on the ground service. Okay? Maybe that's why Paul used the same word that we find in Romans 12.1. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Your spiritual service of worship. That reasonable worship. And, and the writer to Hebrews used that word in Hebrews 9, verses 1 and verse 6. I'm not going to have you turn there. Now even the first covenant has regulations of divine worship or service. And in verse 6, the priests are continuing, uh, continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship or service. Now my point is that the English word service and worship are both used to translate the one word, latria. Both of them. Now, in the coming weeks, I want to present to you, and you're going to see how this is carried out in very practical ways. How do we worship? How do we bring our worship to God? Because I really believe that and I've believed this a long time. One of the greatest things that I loved about planting a church here in America is the fact that I fight against churchianity. It's kind of like Christianese, okay? But churchianity in America is unlike many, many other places. We have a real um, developed culture, especially we're a subculture, as evangelicals, but there's, there's, there's a churchianity that has all sorts of branches to it, okay? Evangelicals, we, we really are not that big on aesthetics, 
right? We're not that big on aesthetics. There's nothing wrong with aesthetics, but we're not that big on aesthetics, obviously. <laughs> Another thing is, is, is that we become more and more like the casual culture that we live in rather than rebels against the culture as we worship God. And I want us to worship God. I want us to worship him in spirit and truth. Okay? So get all the externals out of your mind. This is not a plea for legalistic rules and regulations. It's heart stuff that I'm looking for. You see, such people as the Father seeks. John Piper in his seminal work on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad, begins by setting the record straight. And this is a marvelous book as well. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. I say that as a missionary. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. The glory of God is the ultimate uh, goal of the church because it's the ultimate goal of God. And the final goal of all things is that God might be worshipped with white-hot affection. I love Piper. White-hot affection. That's a dash in between white and hot. By a redeemed company of countless persons from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus explained, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And the Father also seeks those people to worship him. Same word. One who searches for and who is lost, he seeks them. And if he did not, none would be found, and none would be saved, and truly none would worship him. But he seeks them. Now let me wrap things up by having you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to begin at verse 11. And it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also to your conscience. Knowing the fear of God, we do something. We do something. It's not static. It's not just mental assent or, or head knowledge. Knowing the fear of God, we do something. And then look down to verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us or controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that, there's a reason here, so that they who live might no longer live to themselves. Deny yourself, pick up your cross. This is all part of worship, people. And the love of Christ constrains us We're no longer to live for ourselves. And then down at verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then he gave us a ministry of reconciliation. All of us have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That means we are to be ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20. And we beg on behalf of Christ those who are lost in the world Be ye reconciled to God. And here's the kicker. Chapter 6, verse 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We work together with the God that saved us. We're working together. We're fellow workers together in the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because there aren't worshipers in the world. And we're going out and seeking worshipers because that's what God wants for himself. And we get to work together with God as we introduce them to Jesus Christ. So believer, if you are a believer, we're on a great adventure, actually. 
And we're co-laborers together with God in the ministry of reconciliation. And when we become believers, it's at that point that we enter into the throng of worshipers who worship God in spirit and truth. And we will see that throne in heaven. And we will fall down and worship him with everyone else. And that worship is not strictly a passive, subjective experience or some feeling that you get from the music that's played during a worship service, that worship is very active. It involves our working together with God to seek and to save that which was lost through sharing the gospel, the word of reconciliation between man and God. What a privilege. What a privilege. I know there's some guys that are going to be going out and doing some evangelism. Do you know why that's fun? I don't think it's super effective to go and just confront people confrontational evangelism. I think there's other ways to evangelize that are more effective, but I tell you what, it's a lot of fun. Why? Because you might find a low-hanging fruit that God has been just waiting for you to get up and go out and evangelize, and you might be able to lead somebody to God. Can you imagine the thrill of leading somebody from being lost to becoming a white-hot worshiper of God? And that, that's what's been given to us. Now, that's just one way we can worship, and there are so many more, and I'll be talking to you about those ways in the weeks coming ahead here. May God be pleased to use his word in your heart today and open up a whole new way of looking at your worship and to show you the marvelous truth that we've been saved to worship. Yes, we're saved to serve. It's true but primarily we've been saved to worship. And that serving is just one way in which we worship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this little story of Jesus talking to this woman at the well, and there's so much more there that we could talk about. But Father, thank you for reminding us of the need for us to worship in spirit and truth. And that we must have a personal relationship with you. We must be born again if we're ever to worship you in spirit and truth. For if we don't have a personal relationship with you, we do not have the Holy Spirit. If we do not have the Holy Spirit, we cannot worship in spirit. And Father, I just pray that you you burden our hearts today to just make sure that we have that personal relationship with you so that we might bring you our worship Week in and week out, Lord. And may your name be glorified, we pray. Amen.